Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 16, The Goblet of Fire. I don't believe it, Ron said in a stunned voice as the Hogwarts students filed back up the steps behind the party from Durmstrang. Crumb, Harry! Victor Crumb. For heaven's sakes, Ron, he's only a Quidditch player, said Hermione. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter in the Sacred Text. So Matt, only one announcement today, which is what our Every Flavor Bean conversation is going to be. And that is based on this moment between Harry, Ron, and Hermione, in which... Ron really wants Victor Crumb's autograph, and so he's like, ah, I need a quill. And he looks at his friends, Hermione and Harry, and says, Harry, do you have a quill? And so we thought we would tell stories about times that we're asked for things or we ask people for things, and we're like, why aren't you asking Hermione? Why me? (laughs) Harry, do you have a library card? (laughs) Right. Harry, do you have a copy of Hogwarts History on you? Yeah. So if you want to hear our conversation about asking people for the wrong things, including some Harry Potter characters, come and subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. Matt, we are telling a story on the theme of maturity, and I see in our notes doc two of my favorite names, so I can't wait for your story. (laughs) So one of the things I was thinking about with respect to maturity was how it both corresponds to age and doesn't correspond to age. 
And this happens occasionally. I went to Clinton and I was like, I need a story about blank. This time I was like, I need a story about maturity. And she looked at me, gave me the look, and then gave like four examples of things I've done this weekend. Where she's <laughs> like, those are all examples of when you failed to be mature. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about those. I'm going to talk about someone else. I'm going to talk about. I'm going to throw my eight-year-old under the bus. Right. At the time he was five. So perfect okay. for maturity. Perfect mm-hmm. example for maturity. So Danny is a lovely child and he loves to be helpful. I love Like, him. you can almost always get him to do something if you're just like, can you be helpful? And then he wants to do it. Like, you ask him to do it, and he's just like, well, I don't want to go get that thing or do that thing. If you reframe it, you're like, can you be helpful, buddy? Then he's like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right? So, you know, since he was barely able to walk, since we had, had the dog, Suki, he has wanted to be involved in her care. Loves to pick up her poop. Uh-huh. Like, if we say we got it, she has poop to pick up, he's out there. Uh-huh. Right? And one of the things is he wanted to hold her. He wanted to hold her leash while she'd go out to go to the bathroom. Because mm-hmm. he knows that this is a thing that we do all the time, and he wanted to be helpful. And Suki is a small dog, but she's a strong dog. She's She's got that terrier kind of fierceness. And that comes up, comes out in just physical strength for her size. She's got a lot of, like, energy and power, but also, like, a lot of uh, spring. If she sees a small creature, <laughs> she bolts. So mm-hmm. for a long time, we were like, mm-hmm. I'm not sure you're strong enough to do this, buddy. Because you have to hold on to her. Now, a few years ago, this is when Danny was five. He was really begging us to to take the, be able to take the dog out, mm-hmm. and we thought he was probably getting big enough to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. But there were two considerations to be had. The first was just the strength, is whether he could hold on to Suki. The second was like, if she does bolt, <laughs> will he hold on? Mm-hmm. The neighborhood we were in actually had a lot of coyotes. Mm-hmm. And so, like, after dark, we didn't want Suki to get loose because while she was chasing a rabbit, a coyote might chase her. So mm-hmm. he had to hold on to the to the dog. <laughs> and so he said, Danny, you have to hold on. And he said, yeah, 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 I'll hold on. I got it, right? <laughs> so he said, Danny, it's time to go outside and it's, you're going to take the dog out. And we stayed, you know, by the window, looking out the window. And Danny walked out and a rabbit started hopping away and Suki bolted and Danny was dragged across the front yard by, <laughs> by, by the dog. But he held on. And when he came back to the door, actually, we went to get him. Suki was like running around barking crazy. And Danny was like clutching, clutching onto the leash. And we went to get him. And he looked up, you know, tears streaming on his face, scratches all down the front of his body. And he was like, I didn't let go, Daddy. I didn't let go. <laughs> like he was in Titanic. I know. So this is I'll like. Never I'll never let go. So this is like an example of a child who was mature enough, but not quite old enough, right? He had the kind of resolve, like, to to be able to decide, like, I am willing to put aside my own comfort (laughs) for the sake of this responsibility, which I would count as a mature kind of attribute. But, like, he actually couldn't do the thing, which is (laughs) not be dragged across the front yard by a 30-pound woodle. (laughs) So... So that's that's my maturity story. Danny mature, but not old. His dad, old, but not mature. I'm sorry I interrupted so much during that story. It just makes me so happy. Obviously not happy that Danny got dragged. That's terrible. But just what a great kid. And so mature. Yeah. I mean, he had the right emotional disposition. I think that's one of the things we think about right. in maturity. It has less to do with physical aging and more to do with emotional readiness or something. And in fact, the word for maturity 
Mm-hmm. If we'll go to etymology corner now, it comes from an ancient root, which means ripe. Mm-hmm. And then that word ripe in Latin became the word for like goodness. And mm-hmm. even the word for morning, right? Like like the morning as opposed to the evening. Like all those things have the same root, which comes from this idea of ripeness, like fullness. And I think that there's that, that's the thing that we thought about with Danny. Like he was ready. We knew that he was ready to not let go. Our parenting fail was that we Knowing that he was ready to not let go, we had not properly calibrated his strength <laughs> to, right. to, to hold on to the dog or not be dragged across the yard. Not even his strength, just his weight. Yeah, just his just comparative weight. That's yeah. right. Also, Suki, not mature, very strong. Because he <laughs> weighed more than her at the time. Right. But she was, but she was dragging him across the yard. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt, I'm going to try my best to be very mature, even though I do not feel equipped in any way to do this 30-second recap. It's like a whole novella happens in this chapter. This chapter is not long in pages. It's long in, like, content. Yes! I could write a three-hour play about what happens in this chapter, but instead I'm going to summarize it in 30 seconds. Great. I'll count you in. Thank you. Three, two, one, go! So the Durmstrang and Bubba Town students are there, and they have a feast, and there's a lot of, like, cultural clashing, and Hermione is like, oh, my God, the Bubba Town people are a little snobby. It's called Booyah Base. And then um, Ron is like, oh, my God, that woman must be Avila because I'm so attracted to her. And then it's who's going to put their name in the Goblet of Fire and Fred and George try, but they get these beards. And then the there's another big feast, and they also visit Hagrid and Hagrid's into Madame Maxime. But then the feast happens, and it's Fleur de Liqueur, Victor Crumb, Cedric Dur- Dur- Harry Potter. That was great. I feel like you hit everything, including I love that you started by saying there are so many things to cover in this chapter, <laughs> and you went straight for Booyah Base. Like you were not going <laughs> to yeah. miss Booyah Base. Not going to miss Booyah Base. That's going to get mentioned. That's yeah. good. That's good. Now I don't have to mention it. Matt, it is time for your 30 second recap. Okay. On your mark. Don't forget the Booyah Base. On your mark. Get set. Go. So there's Booyah Base. And also, Crumb has been selected. And they're like, oh, no, Crumb hasn't been selected. Crumb is there. And they're like, oh, my gosh, Crumb. And Hermione's like, who cares about Crumb? And then uh, some other things happen. And they have a dinner. And there's going to be a goblet of fire. And then they go to Hagrid's house. And Hagrid looks different. And he's very into that scene. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and also, Harry gets very interested in, in Florida de la Cour. And then they go to the second feast. And the names start flying out. And it's it's Victor Crumb, Florida de la Cour, uh, Cedric Diggory, and Harry Potter. I forgot all about you got a whole thing in. I forgot the Fred and George beard thing. Oh, that's okay. Because because I I said at the beginning, I said Crumb is selected. I meant to say Crumb has shown up, but I used the wrong verb. And then I felt like I had to correct it so people didn't think that I was already at the end of the chapter. And I spent seven whole seconds, which crowded up Fred and George. This is why it's a team team event. Because when one of us fails, at least one of us does it right. So, Matt, to me, there's an obvious moment of maturity. It's maybe not the deepest, but I love that you set up this question of maturity about age and maturity. And there is an age line to submit your name into the Goblet of Fire. Understandably, in order to be in the Triwizard Tournament, you have to be of a certain age because of two reasons. One, you need as much education as you can possibly have, but still be a child 
for some reason. And <laughs> the second one being they want you to be mature enough to handle these stressful situations. Right. And Fred and George are like, F that. We're going to be 17 one day. And so they take just a drop of this aging potion and are like, no problem. We're going to be able to trick the Goblet of Fire. Now, one thing I will say in defense of this logic for Fred and George is that the Goblet of Fire will pick the quote-unquote best competitor. And so they're not – like the Goblet of Fire is sort of protecting them from getting themselves into a situation that would be too dangerous. Right. But there's this age line where it's like you can't actually put your name in if you're under 17. And I don't know what I want to call immature about this. The, I, I actually do know what I want to call immature about this, and I'm curious if you agree. The thing that seems most immature to me about Fred and G- George and Lee Jordan being like, we'll take a drop of aging potion, and then we will be able to trick this age line and put our name in, is that they think that they're going to outsmart Dumbledore. Which just seems like dodo mentality. Yes, it's... Jerry Seinfeld has this line about sort of the guy driving down the street with a mattress on top of his van and he's got his hand on <laughs> holding onto the mattress. Yeah. Like that's that's not you're not doing anything. Insufficient. But you think you are, right? Right. Insufficient. I yeah, that was one of the things. Like Hermione in that moment when they say, Oh, we took a drop of potion and we're gonna walk across this line, Hermione's like, Don't you think you would have thought of that? And they just ignore her. <laughs> right. Because like I think there is that sense of like, I can do anything the way I want the world to be is the way it's going to be. I think that is a sign of immaturity, rather than kind of reckoning with the world as it is, even if the world disappoints you, right? Right. In their defense, again, they're also in the same year as Angelina, and she just happens to be old right. enough and they happen to not be. So it feels yeah. unfair and also to more them. Much- and also more mature than you. Oh, yeah. What I think is really interesting about what you described was just sort of the, the idea of like the goblet makes the decision anyway, right? I mean, what's interesting here is that the the age line has been literalized. We we often think of like a, a age as a boundary line. Like, you know, in most states, I think in the United States, you can drive when you turn 16. Although many 16-year-olds are probably not mature enough to <laughs> to drive. You can vote when you're 18. <laughs> you can enlist in the military when you're 18. Like Because age is a general kind of proxy for maturity, like, and it's just easier than actually gauging whether, or not, whether a person is mature enough for these things, we have these age lines. But an age line is not reliable as a predictor. But the thing is, is like at Hogwarts, they have a reliable predictor, which is the Goblet of Fire. If Dennis Creevy puts his name in, the goblet's not going to pick Dennis Creevy. Like, that's what we've been told. The the goblet (laughs) picks the most appropriate champion from each school, which presumably will be the one who is best capable of handling the tasks. In other words, the most mature, among other Mm -hmm. things, right? And so, like, why not just Mm -hmm. trust the goblet? Yeah. Why do you have to put a line around the—I mean, that's what I thought was really, really right about your framing of the situation. Like, why not just trust the goblet? Is it a literary device in order to to create this moment or the scandal with Harry getting in when he's not supposed to? Or is it saying something, again, about the the Ministry of Magic and the way the Ministry sort of is thinking about these things, thinking about its work bureaucratically and administratively instead of more, like, like substantively, right? More— yeah. Totally. I have a couple of thoughts because I agree with you. It's it's theoretically unnecessary. As far as a plot device, I think it's more that it shows that Harry didn't put his name in, right? There has to be a public believability yeah. that Harry didn't slip his name in. 
So I do think that that's an important plot thing. The other thing that just strikes me as true about it is that we do often have these double tests, right? When you're 16, you don't automatically get your license. You have to be 16 and take a test, right? And you can't be, like, taking the test but not 16, and right? Even if you are, like Danny, very mature for your age. And so— I don't know. It makes sense to me that there are these, like, double and triple checks, and only one of them is age. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think that's right, but that's because in our world, we don't have, like, these reliable— Magic. (laughs) Yeah. You don't have magic to reliably tell us, like, right? Yeah. I think within the context of a novel, it's a a plot device so that Harry can yell at Ron, how could you possibly think that I could have done this? Yeah, that's right. And and also just like there is something about Harry like being selected. I mean, that that's that's continuous with his character, which is like he didn't choose any of this. Yeah. This all chose him, depending upon one's reading, either arbitrarily because Voldemort decided it was Harry and not Neville, mm-hmm. or because he actually was the chosen one in some metaphysical sense, or whatever one's reading is, like Harry didn't choose any of this. It was all foisted upon him. And there's something about they, they, there needs to be this age line so we can know that he did not put his name in. Because we hear of course. from this chapter and previous chapters that there's a part of them that kind of fantasizes about like, oh, what if I could put my name in? What if I could be the champion? Which which isn't, of course, right? But because he is, there's something about him that makes us not want him to want it, right? Or makes us want it to be given to him rather than something that he didn't do it for the glory, right? Like, yeah. even if he fantasized about the glory, it was just, it was foisted upon him. Oh, that's so interesting, Matt. Right? We want him to be a perfect victim. Yes. I think that's right. We want it to be abundantly clear that he, quote-unquote, wasn't asking for it. Yeah, right. Even though it would be perfectly reasonable. Like, characters that we like a lot, Fred and George, (laughs) tried to game the system. This would have been a completely reasonable thing for him to try to do. Every other student at Hogwarts is having an internal fantasy about what if they were the champion and brought glory to the school, right? Yeah. And, like, how unfair it is that this is happening this year and not in three years when it could impact me. Exactly, right. One more thing on this age and selection thing that I want to say is that another sign of maturity to me is that Dumbledore is in no way mad at the kids who are trying to cross the age line. He's just charmed, and he's just like, yeah, I would try to break this rule, too. Like, sure. And it's just, like, laughing at Fred and George. It's also a testament to, like, Fred and George's maturity. I mean, we, yes. when you think about maturity, you don't think of Fred and George. But they also laugh, right? Everyone laughs. They think it's hilarious that they have beards. This, this, you know, they don't feel, like, embarrassed or ashamed or they don't feel angry that this— They just they just go to Madame Pomfrey and to have their, their beards treated, right? So, like, again, it turns me back to the, the initial framing you, you put, which was, like, why not just let the goblet decide? Yeah. Like, Fred and George have resources. We know this from— what they do later, they have resources inside themselves, which ma- their affection for jokes and for pranks doesn't necessarily speak to, but might make them really well suited to some of these tasks. And yeah. let the goblet decide. I will say, I know that I overly focus sometimes on the fact that they're twins. And to me, it's not the fact that they're twins. It's that they are best friends who are always together. But I think part of what allows them to laugh at it is that they know that they have beards by looking at the other and seeing how funny the other one looks (laughs) in a beard. And so there's something about, like, they are laughing at the other one, and then there's the cognitive connection of, like, oh, I look just like that. So I'm also laughing at myself. And, like, there's just that beauty of, like, being that close to someone where you're, like, 
oh, we both look ridiculous in the same way. To see yourself in somebody else. That's right. yeah. yeah. Vanessa, you know, one of the things as I was reading this chapter and trying to think about maturity was thinking about especially some of the male characters in this chapter and them having sort of mature relationships to their own desires. I mean, you know, book four is when romance starts to emerge in the Harry Potter series. And it's almost like all of it starts at the same moment in this chapter. I mean, we had hints of Harry's crush earlier in the book, but here we have Ron seeing Florida Liqueur and obviously being taken with her, and Harry seeing Cho Chang, like when Ron is talking about Floor. And we also have Hagrid, who's, you know, again, presented as kind of comic relief in his hairy suit and his his hair slicked back. I don't think any of these male figures are reacting to their own experience of desire with a lot of maturity. I think they're doing it sympathetically because, like, you know, or at least some of them are doing it sympathetically or more sympathetically than others. Hagrid is probably the most sympathetic in his attempts. He's very endearing in his attempts to try to impress Meta Maxime. But yeah, I just, that was one of the things I was thinking about with maturity. As one ages, as one grows, as one develops, one also develops these sort of sexual desires. What does it mean to come into mature relationship with those things? I think that we have examples of it happening, you know, both sympathetically, but maybe not super maturely in this chapter. Yes. I think let's do one character at a time or one situation at a time because there's one in particular that I want to call out. And that is Ron's comment about Fleur that, quote, they don't make them like that at Hogwarts, which he says in front of Hogwarts student Hermione Granger. And eventual spouse. Right. And Hogwarts student Hermione Granger. Right. Like (laughs) Harry doesn't make it infinitely better by staring at show and being like, I don't know, they make some of them fine at Hogwarts. But this comment from Ron is just so toxic and disgusting to me. Like, immature in every definition of maturity, right? Like, it is it is not being thoughtful to someone else's feelings or even, like, acknowledging that somebody else could potentially have feelings about a situation. It is completely reducing floor to the way that she looks. It is, like, somehow believing that, like, certain cultures have hotter people than other cultures, which is, like, racist and reductive. But I think the most immature part of it is the, like, not thinking about your audience, like, not thinking about how what you're saying is going to land on the people around you. Yeah. Well, I think they're connected, right? Because I think yeah. what what Ron does is immediately objectify Floor. Right. As an object of desire and not as a full person, right? Right. And in doing so, with this comment, he also objectifies every other girl around him, right? As like a comparand to Fleur, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Instead of like a mature response to attraction or sexual desire would be to like recognize that, oh, the person to which I'm attracted is a full person and not just the object of my desire, but more than the object of my desire. Right. And it's almost by by objectifying Floor in this way, as you said, Vanessa, like that objectification just kind of metastasizes onto everybody else in the room, right? And that yeah. that's what's that's the gross thing about it, right? And that's why it immediately impacts and implicates the people who are at the table with him, including eventual wife, <laughs> <laughs> eventual spouse, Hermione Granger. That's right. The other thing that's interesting about what Ron does, and I guess about what Rowling is doing, and I know we're talking a lot about her specifically, Rowling, in these chapters, but 
he also immediately, he's like, I just acted like an idiot in front of her. She must be Avila. Like, I must Mm. be innocent in this. And I hate that he is confirmed to be, quote unquote, correct in that. Like, no, you're being a creep, right? Like, I don't understand what this Vila thing is, you know, how it relates in our world. But the idea that there's a kind of woman for whom, like, people just can't resist but objectifying them and reducing them to nothing more. Like, uh, you know, attraction is attraction and that happens, but, like, how you behave in the face of attraction. I Like, I don't understand in what world this behavior is acceptable. Yeah. I think that's right. I I think that's right. I think that's the real-world analogy that, or our world, muggle world analogy that you need, which is that, like, there is this inclination, especially in, like, forms of masculinity and, toxic masculinity, which suggests that male desire is uncontrollable. Right. Right. That all it can do is objectify rather than we can acknowledge that we have desires and then also try to think about the person as a full person, right? <laughs> which is what yeah, not what Ron possible. does. That's right. So so let's let's start making some comparisons then. How do you think because Harry yeah. makes a not great comment. He assumes Ron's framework in order to rebut it. <laughs> right. Right? Because he's kind of like, no, I don't know. There are some pretty good ones here at Hogwarts, <laughs> right? This is his crush who he doesn't know very well. He actually doesn't know her very well, except as an object of his desire. But you also get the sense that, like, he wants to know the personal side. You know what I mean? Like, it's not... like Totally. It seems like with Ron, he just wants Floor to come by again. That's why he pushes the blamange over <laughs> to, to, to have her pass by again, Right. Where Harry, like, he's got this crush, which is developing more towards, like, acknowledging Cho as a subject in her own right, who has thoughts and feelings and humanity, apart from his his kind of burgeoning desire for her. I mean, the other thing is, is that Cho did attempt to save his life, right? Like, he does know some things about her. She's a Quidditch player, yeah, and she's right. the kind of Quidditch player who's going to be like, Harry, watch out, and, like, let the snitch go in order to, yeah, to try right. to protect him. And this is not the right rebuttal. <laughs> this is in no way right. the right rebuttal. The right rebuttal right. is Ron. That's disgusting. And I would actually argue that that is the explicit job of friends in this moment. And it shouldn't be on Hermione to do it because she is one of the women that is being insulted in this moment. And so, like, yes, better, Harry, like, better crush, better wording, but, like, completely insufficient. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, he, he inherits the framework. Yeah. <laughs> right? He he said to try to rebut it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's go to our last character, Hagrid. What do you think about Hagrid? I don't know. It. It doesn't strike me as immature. It strikes me as something else. It's it's a completely different kind of immaturity than okay. than Ron and Harry and my reading, right? Yeah. Which is that it seems to me that Hagrid has this crush on Madame Maxime, right? And this is something that is totally sympathetic, which is why I said I think he's the most sympathetic version. But it seems like he's trying to create a version of himself which is not himself in order to appeal to her. Right? The more mature approach would be like, if she's going to like me, she's going to like me. And I just have to be me. 
with her. And if she doesn't like me, I can't imagine myself into a different person or create myself into a different person for her because then that will also be a failure, right? Right. Now, again, it's very sympathetic, like, because who doesn't do this? Everybody does this. You try to be as impressive as possible to the person you're meeting. And that's exactly what Hagrid's doing. And it's very cute and endearing and sympathetic. But I think there is something about which is like, Hagrid should just be Hagrid because Hagrid's great and lovable. And if Madame Maxime is going to love him, she's going to love him, not a version of him that he tries to cook up because that version of himself that he cooks up looks inauthentic and kind of ridiculous to everybody else who does know him. And he actually makes himself less appealing by trying to perform a version of himself, which he's not. Yes, I agree with everything you said. But? I No, I, I mean, I do agree with everything <laughs> you said. I just think it's asking a lot. Of course. Like, who doesn't do this right. every time? It's just, <laughs> right? I will say, I once ran into a friend, and I was about to go on a date, and I ran into my friend Tyler, and he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, I'm running home to change. I have a date. And he went, oh, thank God, you're not wearing clogs and socks on your date. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not. And then... My first date with Peter, I did not have time to run home and change. Yeah. And so I was wearing clogs and socks. So he yeah. got to know the real me. That's right. See? And like I said, this is, I, when I said sympathetic, I meant it. Like, I've, yeah. I've been married for, you know, 14 years, and I still do this with my wife. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, like, try to present a version of myself to her. <laughs> She'll probably like me to do this more than I do. <laughs> I, I try to present a better version of myself to her. Right? Right? But that's, that's, that's not the version that she loves. She loves... She loves the real one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, tell me a little bit about why sometimes immaturity is so charming. Right? Because, like, this is so charming in Hagrid. It's so charming that Fred and George are trying to cross this line. It's so 
charming that like it's even a little charming that Ron is just like so gaga over yeah. Fleur. Like there's some is it because it's innocent and like there's something deeply unpretentious or like the people doing it don't know what they look like and it's therefore like cute and kind of vulnerable. Yeah, I mean that's really that's a really great question. I think we tend to associate maturity with a certain kind of propriety mm-hmm. or even guardedness. Right. Or invulnerability. Like it's not actually mature to be super vulnerable all the time to everyone you meet. Right. Like that's that's that would be a sign, I think, in our culture of immaturity that you can't manage your own stuff. Right. Like if you can manage your stuff, then then you are mature. And so when folks in this chapter, like the ones you just described, are revealing themselves to be vulnerable humans like everybody else in these ways that don't cause a lot of harm to everybody else, you know, we might bracket Ron's comment, but like, it doesn't cause anybody harm that that Hagrid's in his hairy suit and has his greased up hair. We just he just reveals himself to be a human being who is subject to emotions and is kind of being swayed by them, and that may be less mature because he's not able to control and hide those things. But but it makes him in yeah, it makes him appealing because we see his humanity. I love everything you just said. And AJ, our producer, just hopped in and asked us such a great question, which is if we think that this is gendered. And I would add to gendered, like, racially coded, right? And any number of ways that it's coded. Would we find this cute if Hermione was being immature in this way? And I think that the chapter shows us some of it, right? That there are girls in this chapter who are like, rummaging through their bags for lipstick to get Victor Crumb to sign something because they don't have quills on them. And I think I find that charming, right? Like, I'm like, cute that you want this so much, but I do not think it's designed to come off as charming. I think it's designed to come off as shallow. And I wish that Rowling was commenting on that right, was aware that that's a double standard we have in the world and was complicating it. But I just think that Rowling is reifying this idea that it's annoying when women do it, right? We're going to see that they're silly girls who are going to watch Harry as captain, you know, fawning over him, and they're going to be really annoying. And and there there is also something dangerous about a certain kind of male immaturity, right? Catcalling, for example. But it does feel like if you are not a white, straight, cis man, you have less grace around this. There isn't as much charm when you're acting like a little bit of a moron. Yeah, yeah, right. I don't think the text is encouraging us to have a sympathetic reading of Ron. And I mean, to me, he reads like a jerk, and I think that's that's a reading that the text sustains. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is this, that it allows for a sort of reading, which is also like, oh, this is just the way male desire works. Or right. this is just the way that that kind of boys will be boys kind of behavior that the that the text accommodates and that it doesn't accommodate for other characters, right? That we don't have examples. And this is something that, you know, AJ said when he kind of posed the problem to us. So we don't have examples of other characters in this book who will behave the same way and are allowed to be received the same way. Right. And also like, we learn later in the book that Hermione has feelings for Ron, right. right? And she reveals herself to be vulnerable, and that is endearing to her. But in her version, it takes the form of her pain and heartbreak, right? Right, rather than in the version of Ron and Harry, it's like a you know, it's a 
a comment at the table that, that right, you know what I mean? Like that that's that's a sign of how vulnerability lands differently and is gendered differently for folks. For it to become sympathetic in the case of Hermione, it has to do with her feeling this acute pain rather than wisecracking at the dinner table. I'm already mad at what's gonna happen to Hermione. So, Matt, we're now doing chavruta, which is the practice of question asking and coming to a truth through conversation. So, Matt, my question is based on this quote from Dumbledore. You know, he's telling the students the rules of the Goblet of Fire and the Triwizard Tournament. And he says, quote, I wish to impress upon any of you wishing to compete that this tournament is not to be entered into lightly. Once a champion has been selected by the Goblet of Fire, he or she is obliged to see the tournament through to the end. The placing of your name in the goblet constitutes a binding magical contract. Now, I know, of course, that like we can't know the magic of this, But I can't imagine, like, if you are severely injured or something big happens in your life, like, they can't force you to engage in this competition. So I'm wondering, what do you make of this? And the reason that I think it's an important question is because it's the premise of Harry being in the competition that... Harry has to do it because his name came out of the Goblet of Fire, and that's it. There's a magical bond. And yet we never see them push against this magical bond. We never see Harry try to simply not attend the first task and, like, take the loss and be like, I guess I lost the first task. I was sitting in the stands instead of trying. And so my question is, What is this magical bond that forces students to engage in something that they said that they were going to do? Because my answer is that it's actually social norms and that there's just like no way that you could force a child to try. Like maybe magically Harry will show up at the foot of the dragon, but he could then forfeit and like walk away. And so actually Dumbledore not questioning the validity of the Goblet of Fire is what gives the Goblet of Fire its power. And that sometimes I think that that's really important, right? Like us believing that elections are valid is what makes them valid. Us believing that money is currency and that paper has value is what gives it value. But this to me seems like a moment where Dumbledore should be like, nope, And so I'm wondering if you think, is this like actually magical and they can't resist it? Or is it social structures at play here? I mean, I feel like I don't know enough about magic to answer this question. I mean, and this just kind of reveals something which is maybe it's an inconsistency in the series or it's just like there's further writing in fan fiction about like the layers and levels of magic. Because it seems like there are some levels of magic which are absolutely inviolable in the series, right? Like the protective force of four privet drive until Harry comes of age. It seems impenetrable, right? And, like, seems so easy for Voldemort or any of the Death Eaters to figure out. Like, of course he's going to live with the Dursleys who are related to his parents. Of course they can look at public records and figure out where they live, right? Like, but that protection seems inviolable. Or Peter Pettigrew, his life having been saved by Harry, like, 
the force of that deep magic or something is inviolable as we see in book seven, right? So there's some stuff that is. Mm -hmm. I don't know which things are because other forms of magic seem to land less heavily, right? So it sounds like Dumbledore wants to say that this is like the magical contract is serious and this is it. But you're right. What does participating look like? Like maybe like magic could could like force your feet to move you into the arena with the dragon, but like it can't strategize for you. It can't like make you actually engage with the dragon. You might just be there and then get destroyed by the dragon. Right. <laughs> right. But in which case, like then your tournament's ended, right? Like have have you followed through or like at the edge of the lake? Will it just hurl you into the lake? So this is the question I have, which is like there's two phrases that Dumbledore uses in his language. He's like, there can be no change of heart. The, the champion is obliged to follow it through to the end. So what does following it through to the end mean? Right. And what does change of heart mean? Because obviously there can be a change of heart, right? You put it in the framework of social norms, and I think that might be a useful framework. But it's hard to know the degree to which social norms are influencing this situation when we don't understand exactly how the magic is working. Right. But I'm sure something is happening there. Dumbledore wouldn't mention it unless he wanted the weight of those social norms to impact the decision of students who are thinking about putting their names into the goblet, right? So he's trying to to work upon that, right? I mean, there are points in these tasks where, you know, Harry is flummoxed and doesn't know how he's going to complete these tasks, and he has to show up. We get that he has to show up. But is he following through to the end if he risks doing something he doesn't understand how to do and and endangers himself? and and that is exactly what happens with Cedric. Cedric doesn't actually understand what's going on or what the stakes are as he embarks on that final task. And his following it through to the end, it becomes literalized. It becomes his end, right? So I guess the answer to my question, what does following through the end look like? This is where your, I think your social norms framing becomes really important because having been obligated to participate, there are all these social norms saying you must try. Yeah. You can't just go to the starting line and forfeit on the spot, even if you don't want to be there, even if you think it's risky, even if you think it's dangerous. So I think whatever else the magic does, I think there is obviously social pressure at play to to encourage these champions to be champions and to give it their all, even if what they're facing doesn't seem like something that they're interested in doing. Yeah, I wonder, Matt, if it is until you physically can't. If it's going to, like, drag yeah. you, like Suki dragged Danny, until you physically, like, can't anymore. Yeah. Just because that is how this ends for all four students, right? Like, yeah. Fleur and Crumb get, like, physically stunned. They, like, cannot keep competing. And then, obviously, as do Cedric and Harry. I guess what this book is always just makes me feel is how often I see things as this is the way it is, it's how it has to be, and I'm wrong. Like, because it seems to me that fine, there can be a conversation about, oh, shoot, like Harry's name got in and he is going to be pulled against his will into the arena and, you know, maybe dragged until he's unconscious, you know, like whatever it is. So therefore, what are the ways that we can set him up to resist? Because we all agree that he shouldn't be here. And I don't I don't understand where that meeting is. And what I'm really yeah. worried about is where in my life I'm not having those meetings. Yeah. 
Yeah, because that's really the thrust of your question, which is like, if it's not appropriate for Harry to participate, how do they, in accord with whatever the magic will force him to do, how do they keep him safe? Right. How do they keep him from doing stuff that he shouldn't be obligated to do while still, like, letting the magic do whatever the magic requires? Yeah. It seems like there are some options, right? It seems like there are some options which are unexplored. Yeah, and that's just it, is, like, I want to make sure that in my life— I step back and go, okay, so the rule is everyone who puts their name in (laughs) is the Goblet of Fire. But the rule is not the ethic. The ethic is we want there to be camaraderie amongst different cultures. We think that, you know, whatever it is that we think that these things are good for and to keep students safe. So how do we, within the framework of the Goblet of Fire, keep the kids safe? Right. Well, thank you, Matt. I feel like we articulated something that I was really struggling with. So thank you so much for your help. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, like, I hadn't really thought about it in this instance, but this is another situation where, like, there's not enough protection for Harry, not enough adults who are actually trying to figure out ways to keep him safe, even though all of them think that they're doing all the things they need to do to keep him safe. Right. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. And now we have a voicemail from Chrissy. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the Sacred Text team. My name is Chrissy. My pronouns are she, her. And today I would like to offer a blessing for Harry Potter. In the last few years, I have been going undergoing a faith transition 
and dealing with not viewing my religion and my upbringing in the same way. At the same time, I have been going through grief and a transition with my feelings in Harry Potter to Harry Potter in the books because of J.K. Rowling and her transphobia. It feels as though the things that made so much sense to me when I was a child and young adult are more complicated now that I've reached adulthood. Not because I've changed, though I have, but I think it's because I can now see what we might call the dark side of the things that I love. I think Harry had a similar experience with Dumbledore when he died. He thought he knew Dumbledore. He thought Dumbledore was all goodness. He called himself Dumbledore's man through and through. But after Dumbledore died, he learned and he found out that he might not agree with Dumbledore on all things. And that Dumbledore had made choices that Harry didn't approve of. And that Dumbledore was complicated. And yet, Harry went on in that conflict. And so, a blessing for Harry and all of us who are learning to live in the conflict in the things we love. I don't think there is one right way to deal with this conflict and with this challenge. And I bless all of us that we will be able to find the way that works for us. Thank you. Thank you, Chrissy, for this voice memo. I'm sorry for all the the grief that you've been experiencing, but I'm also, it sounds like you're grateful for the new insights and enlightenment that you've experienced. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that too. I feel like in my life, you know, my relationship to my own faith has just been a process of letting go of things that I could no longer hold on as true and looking more towards my religious life as a way to reckon with mystery and also reckon with wrong, reckon with like where I think I've failed and where I think that the ideas and, and traditions I've inherited where they've failed. And so whatever its value to me, it's in helping me reckon with those things. And I'm really grateful that you're reckoning with these things and asking us to reckon with those things in our own lives as well. Now's the time in the episode when we remember those in our community who have been loved and lost. Pat Rauta, 34, an avid Cleveland sports fan and loyal friend. Eileen Cotton, 101, fierce and loving in equal measure. Stephanie Seaton, 58, an activist, survivor, mother, grandmother, and inspiration. Phyllis Turnbull, 96, a mother, grandmother, lover of birds, plants, and champagne. Maxim von Wantergem, 26, a blinding light and aching darkness. David DeMambro, 54, a father of four, innovator, and enthusiastic adventurer. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week? I'm blessing Angelina. I 
just love her for like parading up to the Goblet of Fire. It's like she's a shy smile. She's loving this while also like being a little embarrassed and it's so sweet. And I just love that she has this like group of fans and supporters following her. And I just want to bless her for having this moment. We all deserve these moments, you know, and we don't all get them. Some of us are you know, bold and heroic in quieter ways. But I just, I want this for everyone. And I'm so happy Angelina has it. So what about you, Matt? Who would you like to bless this week? I usually tend to bless like more central characters. But this week I was really, my heart broke a little bit when Karkarov like just kind of was mean to a Durmstrang student named (laughs) Polyakov. Karkarov offers crumbs some mulled wine to like, to help him recuperate and recover or whatever. And Polyakov, who, who you know, maybe spilled a little something on his robes, uh, asks, like, <laughs> I would like some mud line, and just gets sort of <laughs> skewered by Karkarov very unkindly. And I just felt bad for Polyakov. That moment seemed to be representative of a larger dynamic between them. And I think about Polyakov, you know, in this ship for the next academic year and at Durmstrang, Every year, he's probably having a hard time there when his head of school is not very fond of him. And so I just wanted to bless Polyakov and hope that he gets some mulled wine at some point. A blessing for spillers everywhere. That's right. Vanessa, next week we're going to be reading Book 4, Chapter 17, The Four Champions, to the theme of embarrassment. A couple of reminders before we give our thanks. Our summer camp is still on sale. You can join us in June of 2023 for a weekend of joy and celebration and reflection. We also have an Emily Dickinson pilgrimage on sale. And our tarot class starts next week. You can find out more about all of these at NotSorryWorks.com. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry Productions is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Malika Gampenkam. Our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks this week to Chrissy for her voice memo to us, to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Willison, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Balsell, and everyone who sent in the names of those they have loved and lost this week. Very early Why on, he wanted to sound like a golden retriever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, you know, Danny is or is his personality not almost identical to a golden retriever puppy? It is. I love him <laughs> okay. so it is. much.